We have spent this uh, year, 2023, walking through the book of Revelation. We are nearing the end. Um, we are in chapter 21 today. We will finish on New Year's Day. This is one of, you know, one in every seven years we have 52 Sunday, 53 Sundays in a year, and this is that year. We're looking at John's vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and there's five sections to this vision. And uh, we're on number three, section number three today. We have two more, and then we get, and actually the last one is in chapter 22, which is the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Uh, this vision of the New Jerusalem, of course, it's a vision of a city descending out of heaven. But it's also a bride descending from, from God. Uh, we've talked about the bride. Even last week we talked about that. We also talked about the 12 foundation stones of the city, which were the 12 apostles. We talked about the 12 gates of the city, which were the, inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. We talked about the great wall that surrounds the city. In this section, again, there are, is a lot about architecture and about building materials. Walls and gates and foundations and size and borders and streets and lights. Some of us uh, are really interested in that kind of stuff and others are not very interested in that kind of stuff. Um, and that's often the way it is with scripture. Uh, studying scripture involves learning about a lot of things that you might not naturally be interested in. It, literature, grammar, history, geography, culture, language, warfare, animals, government, human relations, and many other things. And some of us are interested in some of those and some aren't. But if they open the door to being able to enjoy the treasure of God's word, then we become interested in them. My favorite analogy about this is that if you found out that in your that beneath your backyard you had gold even if you had no natural interest in mining suddenly you would be interested in finding out more about mining and thus it is with the word of god which is a gold mine so don't be put off by the construction details as we go through this passage there are treasures in them. So let's read the passage. Revelation 21, 15 to 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 
144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, I forgot to look that one up to see, make sure that was the right pronunciation, the eleventh jacinth, same thing about that one, and the twelfth amethyst, which I, we actually have someone in our church named Amethyst, right? Wonderful. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, obviously, there's many things in this passage, but the two I'd like to focus in on this morning, number one is the shape of of this city, that this new Jerusalem that descended, that John saw in the vision descending out of heaven. And the second thing is the size of the new Jerusalem, size of the city. So let's talk first of all about the shape. It tells us that the one with the measuring rod measured it and it was the same length and height and width, meaning it was a cube, a perfect cube each side being about 12,000 stadia. We'll get to how big that is in a few minutes. But uh, So it's cubic, the city. Um, and that's significant. Because if you're really familiar with the Old Testament, immediately the idea of a cubic building reminds you of the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies, of course... Um, was also called the most holy place or the inner sanctuary. It was the most important room in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was also a perfect cube. The dimension in the tabernacle, though, was 10 cubits, which is about 15 feet high, wide, long. And then when they, when they built the temple, it was 20 cubits high, wide, and long. But the shape remained the same. So the shape of of the room was clearly important. And if you remember the story about the tabernacle and the story about the Holy of Holies, when God but because there's certain people here that might not remember or might not be familiar with it, let me remind you. God, when he led the Israelites out of Egypt, as he brought them out of Egypt and before they went to the promised land, he taught the people how he wanted them to approach him. They were living in tents as they went on their journey through the wilderness towards the promised land. So he commanded them to build a tent for him where they could meet with him. And they called it the tabernacle, which means tent, and also called it the tent of meeting because that's where they would meet with him. Later, after the Israelites had settled in the promised land, David and his son Solomon worked to replace 
replaced the tabernacle with a temple in Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem was known as the city of God. Because that's where God lived, in the temple. But both the temple and the tabernacle were divided into two rooms. Each having one access. You walk through the, the uh, one room to end up in the other room. The outer room was called the holy place. And the inner room was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. These two rooms were divided by a thick, heavy curtain. Only the priests were allowed to go into these rooms, into the outer room, in particular the holy place. There were three pieces of furniture in that outer room which were designed to be aids to worship. There was the uh, temple of the, I'm sorry, the altar of incense, there was the table of the showbread, and there was the lampstand or the menorah. However, God's presence wasn't so much in that room as in the next room, the Holy of Holies. In that room, behind the curtain, God's glory cloud dwelt, hovering over the Ark of the Covenant, which was a gold box and that had the image of an angel, on two angels, two cherubim on the top of it. And on that lid, between the two angels, was the area was called the mercy seat, and that's where the glory cloud of God dwelt. It was the place where heaven and earth came together. And also, it showed how many barriers still remained between God and sinful mankind. The Holy of Holies was itself constructed after the pattern that had been shown Moses in a vision, a heavenly pattern as we see in Hebrews 8.5, which says the priests served a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was in, that is the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain when he went up to be with God. Now, outside of these two rooms, there are still a lot of other areas and chambers of the temple complex. Many more with the temple than with the tabernacle. There was the court of the Gentiles, where uh, Gentiles who were interested in the Lord and who wanted to uh, draw as near to the Lord as possible, they could come. Then you go up a few stairs from that level, and then... um, Only Jews could go up those stairs. And up those stairs, there were two big regions. One was called the court of the women, and the other was called the court of Israel, where only Israelite men could go. In fact, if a Gentile uh, entered the court of Israel, it was a capital offense. 
This is how holy this place was in their minds. And even the Romans, to appease the Jews, allowed capital punishment, even for Roman citizens, if they dared to go into the court of Israel. And there was posted, and we found archaeologists that find, found two signs that said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. Then, inside the court of Israel was the court of the priests, where only priests could go. The priests, of course, would often work at the altar, tending to the sacrifices, and the laver of water was also there. And then, still going closer to the temple, the structure itself, you're going indoors now, was the porch of the temple. And then you would enter into the holy place where only priests could go just when it was their turn to provide the services with those three pieces of furniture I mentioned earlier. And then there was the curtain and then inside the curtain was the holy of holies. So getting into the holy of holies was harder than getting into the oval office at the White House. I think that's a decent analogy. Just how difficult it would be for any one of us to just decide we wanted to go get into the Oval Office. It would be well nigh impossible. And that's what it was for them. Some have claimed that a rope would be tied around the high priest's ankle when he entered into the Holy of Holies because in that, when the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies was one person, the high priest, and that on only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, when he would take the hyssop branch with, uh, that had been dipped in the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat on that day to cover the sins of the people. And uh, so they were. some have said that when the priest went in, they would tie a... Uh, a rope around his ankle in case he died while he was in there because they had no other way to go in and retrieve his body they would pull him out um, that is we don't really know if that's true um, we have no historical record of that happening at the time but uh, there were those in the first few hundred years after Christ that claimed that that was the case People of Israel were the only people in the world who had access at all to the presence of God in the temple. But in one sense, the tabernacle and the temple and all the rules forbidding access, as I said, were given that, that they could see that there were still barriers between them and God that their access to him was blocked in some ways and that the way to God had not yet been opened up. This structure of the temple also showed that the only hope of being able to enjoy free and full access to God 
to his favor and his fellowship was one, through the high priest and two, through the sacrificial blood. And of course, all of this was in preparation for Jesus. He was our high priest. And what happened when he died on the cross, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Mark, that when Jesus died on the cross, at the moment of his death, the curtain was torn. This large, thick curtain was torn, and it says, from top to bottom. And we're told in Hebrews 9 about Jesus, he entered once for all into the holy place of God's presence, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like the high priest in Israel did, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So, by his death, Christ has now torn open the barrier that exists between his people and himself, so that, as Hebrews 4.16 says, we can now confidently come before the throne of grace, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. So the door is open. Christ has broken it down, if you will. So now we can enter, spiritually speaking. But we still live on the earth. We're still affected by our sin. We're still living in cursed bodies. We're still mortal. But here in Revelation 21 we find out that one day we'll have a new holy of holies in a new Jerusalem. But we'll not just have it. We will live in it. No one even thought about living in the holy of holies. It was something you might visit. But according to the the vision of the new Jerusalem, we will dwell in the Holy of Holies with the Lord Himself. And this explains why it had to be so it has to be so enormous. And we're talking about a big city here. The fifteen the uh, the measurement that's given here of the uh, the stadia, twelve thousand stadia, that's seems to be about fifteen hundred miles. So the city is 1,500 miles in each direction, width, length, and height. So imagine if the, the New Jerusalem were right here, we're standing at one of the corners. If you look down the wall, southwest, the next corner is in Mexico. And if you look northwest, that corner is almost to the Northwest Territories, the province in Canada. And then the far off corner that you can't see would be in western Nevada, almost to California. So we're talking about a very big city. And plus, it's 1,500 feet high. Now, um, you know that that's pretty tall. If uh, there are only a few buildings on earth that are 1,500 feet And we're talking about 1,500 miles tall. 
Mount Everest is about just under six miles tall. And this is 1,500 miles tall. So why is this city so big? Well, it has to be big. Because it's got to hold people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every age, and every corner of the earth. And when I say every age, I mean every generation, every time period through history. You know, I think of Jesus as a baby born in a manger. And that little holy of holies where he and his parents dwelt and received visitors, a few visitors. And how that, like Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, you know, grows into this new Jerusalem, which is, has to be so big. You've got to make a big, big building or a big room if you're going to house this many people. And what a glorious picture that we're given of that here. Now, after this, we're, the next few verses, beginning in verse 18, tell us about the material which composes the city. The wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then it goes through 12 different kinds of precious stones, or gemstones, for the 12 foundations, the 12 apostles. And then it says the 12 gates were, the tw- were 12 pearls. Uh, you know, you're talking about one monstrous... Um, oyster to make a pearl that that is a gate of the city. I don't want to meet that that oyster. Anyway, um, so why is the city built with precious stones? It's easy to think that oh, it's just because you know it's such a spectacular and elegant place, and it's like fancy because it's such a wonderful place. And certainly that's true, but it seems to me that it's more than that. Um, You know, it's... When God created the world, most of the stuff he created was rather ordinary. Rocks, dirt, sand. But he also created some pretty special things which you know, capture your attention much more than those other things. Things like flowers and sunsets and waterfalls and gemstones. These extraordinary things that God created receive a lot of attention from mankind because of their beauty, their magnificence, their permanence, their rarity, and the fact that they're just different from the other stuff, the more common stuff. It's almost like they're little exotic things from another world. And I think that's the way that we're supposed to think of them. 
they're like reminders that there's another world. It's not surprising then that they get used in the creation of holy things like the temple and like the ephod of the high priest which had 12 gemstones on it. But now we come to the new Jerusalem and this thing is full of these precious stones and, and pearls and gold. Even the streets are paved with gold. So what's the point of a gold and jewel bedazzled city? Well, let me ask you this. Many things in the book of Revelation are symbolic. So what's, what, are they, what do precious stones and metals symbolize here in this vision? Well, the 12 foundations... The 12 foundation stones were 12, the 12 apostles, as we talked about last week. But now, they're not just foundation stones, but they're gemstones. So, these, you know, when it says foundation stones, we tend to think of a big square block of rock. You know, maybe marble. But these are gemstones. These are squares of diamond and other things like that. So, uh, and the 12 sons of Israel are pearls. So the precious stones are actually people. And this reminds us of what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says that just as Christ was a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... That sort of draws our attention to the fact that unlike common people who are just like ordinary stones, this stone, though it was rejected by men, God said, this one I've chosen and this one's precious. So this is a precious stone. So just like that, it says, so we also are living stones being built into a spiritual house. So Christ, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone, not of a physical house, but of a spiritual house. And where is this house? It says in the passage, in Zion. In 1 Peter 2, it says that this house is in Zion. What's Zion? That's Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. So these gemstones are the people who make up the new Jerusalem. It's you and me and millions of others who know and love Jesus down through the ages, even before he came. So I can't find anywhere in the Bible that calls us jewels or gems now, but one day, that's just what we're going to be. We are living stones now. One day we'll be living gemstones, living gold bars. Now, let me ask you this. How are gemstones formed? 
how are jewels formed? I don't mean the last steps of the jeweler doing his work. I'm talking about how does that kind of stone come into existence? Well, it doesn't come easy. It, they are formed by pressure and heat over a long period of time. actually a beautiful work that God is doing. A glorious project he's working on. But there are many times when he's making you into a precious stone. It's not easy. It's hard. Very hard. You really feel the fire and feel the pressure. But it's well worth it. Because when all is said and done, we will radiate with the glory of God. Romans 9, 21-23 tells us that God is a potter fashioning vessels. And though many of his vessels, it says, he makes for dishonor, like a wash basin or a toilet, some vessels... He makes for honor. Some are beautiful vases that that you put into your home to beautify your home. And that's what we're talking about here. Right now, we may be clay pots which hold a precious treasure. But through fire and pressure over a long period of time, we are being fashioned by God into precious treasures. Vessels of beauty that we might come to see the riches of God's glory and grace. I think that's what this is all about. Let us pray. Oh Lord, you are amazing. You take what looks like in the eyes of men worthless junk and you turn them into treasures that glow with your glory. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have called us even though we're unworthy, even though we're weak, even though we're nothing. And you are doing the most amazing art project that's ever been done in turning us into a glistening city that shines and radiates with Christ. We thank you for the encouragement that we can receive from remembering why there's all this pressure and all this heat and why it takes so long. And we pray, Lord, that your work would continue and that you'd give us strength in the meantime to remember that it's not just happening randomly, but it's all happening for your good purpose in our lives because you're making us into something beautiful. 
We pray that it would continue and that you'd help us be more and more willing and more and more faithful and more and more trusting in the midst of it, dear Lord. Now we thank you for the privilege of coming to the Lord's Supper. And we pray that you would feed us Christ because we know, O Lord, that he went before us, that he went through the fire, he went through the pressure, he went through all the difficulties that brought us salvation. And all he's doing now is asking us to follow him through the process. So Lord, we celebrate not only that he endured it all out of love for us, but we celebrate his great triumph and the glory which he now enjoys, the name which is given to him, but which is above every other name, and the promise that one day he will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So Lord, we celebrate his death, and in doing so, we celebrate his triumph. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.